Hey, everybody. Welcome to the I Can't Help You podcast. A uh, very special guest on the show today, my friend and colleague, Mr. Brad Reedy. Dr. Brad Reedy is on, on with us today. Hello, Brad. Hey, Danny. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. We've been wanting to do this for a long time, actually. And, um, you know, full disclosure here, Brad is, I consider Brad a friend. We've known each other quite a long time. Um, have shared clients, uh, you know, different people transitioning out of his programs, coming to Aim House, and we've uh, facilitated a workshop together, a professional's workshop, which we want to make sure we touch on um, during this podcast. But anyway, it's Brad. Most of you who are listening to this know who Brad is, but, um, you know, he, uh, I'm not going to read his whole bio because it's intimidating to me and I feel inferior when I do things <laughs> like that. So he's, uh, but Brad uh, has, you know, he's the founder of uh, Second Nature Wilderness originally, which then split and became, he created another company called Evoke, um, and um, Evoke uh, does, among other things, wilderness therapy and also um, really cool individualized workshops. There's one called Finding You that I highly recommend to people, um, and there's professional workshops as well that they're doing at this really cool lodge in Park City. So it's not just wilderness therapy that they're offering, but they're also offering this other piece. So I don't mean to, to plug it like it's an infomercial here. It sounds like that a little bit, but I'm a very much a believer in the work because I've experienced it for firsthand being up there and doing that and obviously worked with a lot of clients over the years. So long-winded way of saying Brad's done a lot of stuff. He's also got a book um, called The Journey of the Heroic Parent. Did I get that right? I think so. You did. I read it and it's a good book and um, is finishing up his second book, which is coming out here soon. So you'd be on the, be on the lookout for that as well. But Brad, welcome. We're just stoked to have you. So... Thanks. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. So, Brad, one of the things I was wondering about, I feel like I know a lot about you, but I, I don't really know. How did you get into this work? Like, I know you went to BYU and I know that you right. grew up in Southern California. Tell me a little bit about how you landed. You know, I, I doubt when you're in the sandbox at three years old, you said, I want to be a you know wilderness therapist when I grow up. You know? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. As a matter of fact, I, I had never heard of wilderness therapy. And when I was in graduate school, finishing up my doctoral degree, my professor encouraged me to, to look for this program in Southern Utah. It was Aspen Achievement Academy, one of the, the, the seminal, the, the birthplaces of, of, of modern wilderness therapy. And so he'd had a son go there and just loved it. And so he said, see if they have a job. It's a really good opportunity to, to hone your clinical skills and, and to, to make connections and in, in really across the nation. And so I, uh, I tried to call. I got no answer, so I just drove down there one day. It was a two-and-a-half-hour drive from my house out in the middle of nowhere, and I just happened to show up on a day when the previous therapist had quit because he got lost in the field, and out of frustration, <laughs> he quit on the spot. So my interview went really well. <laughs> they needed you. <laughs> yeah. I, during the staff meeting, somebody said, who's going to take group three? And the clinical director turned to me and said, Brad. So I felt really good about my interview later that day. And uh by that afternoon, I, I was driving out to the field. I'd been geared up by the, the folks in the warehouse, and I was spending the night and, and saw my first scorpion, my first snake <laughs> out in the wilderness and, and was working with my first two clients that day. And so it was really kind of a, a baptism by fire. I just kind of learned as I went. And the first thing I noticed was the amazing people that do this. And the second thing I learned was how resilient children were, that, that they came in with, with a, the, the overall mantra of I can't and how they really did something that, that I, from even from that perspective, was impressed and amazed by 
um, what they were capable of accomplishing. So that was my, that's how I got into it. And I, I got into it really by way of being one of them when I was a teenager. I, I didn't go to wilderness therapy. We didn't have the money. I didn't know about it. My, my mom didn't know about it, but I was one of the kids that, that now that, that we treat. So I, I could relate to it really, really easily. Yeah. You know, I've often thought about we're about the same age and we both spent our high school years in Orange County, California. I, I've mm-hmm. thought about it often that we probably were at the same party at least once. Like we had to have at <laughs> <Probably>. least, <laughs> we had to cross. I, I can't, I can't <laughs> deny or confirm that probably. <laughs> nor can I, nor can I remember. So that's not particularly helpful. But anyway, um, right. tell me a little bit about, so wilderness therapy. I notice when I speak uh-huh. to people who don't know much about wilderness therapy, um, Oftentimes there's there's this oh like boot camp like believe it or not people still right. and, and and those kind of programs exist there's a whole bunch of different types of programs under this umbrella considered or known as wilderness therapy can you talk a little bit about how you've seen wilderness therapy evolve both you know kind of right. as an industry and then and then for you and in your work and your interests you know I, I don't mind that people have that that perception because it, it allows me to answer this question that you're asking which is what is it and what are kind of the theoretical underpinnings of it? When I first got into it in the mid 1990s, it was it, it still had a little flavor of of, of kind of a shock therapy, of, of kind of scaring the children straight. That wasn't really the, the 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 main premise, but it was still there a little bit. And so, what I saw, what what we did when we started a, a couple of years later, was to really infuse a strong clinical component. And I think that's the thing that people don't know about Willer's therapy is it's it's really simply put therapy outside. We we still practice a primitive living nomadic model, which is means that we hike from place to place and that we don't go to a base camp um, during the the client's stay. So people are living outdoors, and and within that context of small group living, we do group therapy, experiential activities, and really the everything becomes grist for the mill. And so. Uh, that that clinical overlay, and then what what really evolved for us because I was a I, I graduated in marriage and family therapy, and so did my my two of my partners, my original partners. And when I first got into the field, they told me not only you don't have to work with families, but they actually said don't work with the families very much. Half an hour phone call a week is all that they get that that they that they need, and you'll be wasting your time if you spend a lot of time with parents, which didn't make sense after what I just spent my, my time studying. And right. so when we started Second Nature and when we started to, to evolve the model, it was family-based. We, mm. we brought families into the field. We started adding family support. We added length uh, of time to, to calls and assignments and eventually a parent portal. And now we have a, an array of, of family support, family education, family experiences, because in my mind, it's you know, and I think many people believe this. It's it's a family intervention. It's a family issue, and the thing that's going to really create uh, sustained change, the, the ability to maintain the change that happened in all of our amazing programs is if the families get on board and, and and kind of equip themselves with tools and ideas that that going forward they can help support each other, support the identified patient. So, the family piece, the clinical piece, evolved early, and the family piece later on. Um, and, and then since then, I think a, a strong component of mindfulness, mind, body, spirit curriculum has, has really taken over. There's other offshoots like, like adventure therapy and, and horticulture therapy, and, and they have their place, but that's not what we do. That's not our version of wilderness therapy. Talk about that primitive nomadic model a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. 
you know, I have my own story about that, but but why why does that work? Like what what something gets unsettled and then something seems to get right. really settled? And and can you talk about that a little bit? Like I mean, because it's shocking at first. Even you know, making that right. pitch to a parent over the phone, it's like, yeah, we're gonna outfit them. They're gonna learn how to bust a fire. Uh, you know, they'll eat outside. They'll sleep outside, even if it's snowing. You know, all these other kinds of things. You talk a little bit about why that works, like what happens for the individual. Obviously, everybody's different, but what's the process like, you know, for people? Right. Uh, you know, uh, well, there's actually a great podcast that, that relates to this question. It's, it's called the, the Work Life by Adam Grant, and where he talks about how NASA, uh, NASA trains its astronaut teams using a version of primitive living nomadic wilderness therapy. And the idea that it's only under stress that we really access our vulnerability mm. and we really learn what it's like to depend upon each other. That when we create experiences that are fun, that are enjoyable, team building experiences classically, that we don't really get at the heart of, of vulnerability and resilience. And so I think wilderness therapy, primitive living brings that out in people. It brings out um, kind of, like I said, the, the first thing I noticed about clients, their ability to meet challenges, their ability to to deal and feel. It's really like life only more mm-hmm. is the way that I think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So so being out there dealing with, uh, and I've been, I've been in this role as a therapist. I've been in this role actually as a parent because I sent my own child to wilderness therapy 10 years after we started ours. Yeah, I remember, um, I remember that. That, that. It's in the context of dealing with rain and snow and heat and, and, and the, the group and, and working together that you really kind of learn, you kind of figure out what you're made of, what it means to be a, a self mm. and also what it means to belong. And those are two primary needs that we all have is what do we, how do we fit in? What do we belong to? And, and who are we? And I think it's just a great, it's a great backdrop. It's a great delivery method for really a, a bunch of traditional therapies that we all use and think of with that experiential backdrop, you're able to bypass resistance and get to the heart of it. Some of my best sessions were talking about what was going on for the client in the moment, you know, that week, instead of assignments and and, and exercises and and readings and and writing, it was how they were dealing with with being out there and the challenge and the discomfort and and how they were able to overcome it. So I think primitive living, just camping therapy, mm. just really sets you up as a therapist, as a, as a program for, for a lot of rich material to work with. And you, you know, you guys, we all do, but especially you guys at, at that level of care, you deal with a ton of resistance, right? And and it's right. not just resistance from the client themselves coming out and that, but it's resistance from families. We, we deal collectively with resistance from staff, right. resistance within ourselves. Um, what are your thoughts about resistance? What have you been thinking about with resistance lately? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's something that I have been thinking about and writing about lately. And, and you know, there, there are two things I would say about resistance. The first thing is that I think when we think of resistance, the first thing that comes to mind is being oppositional, mm. right? Right, mm. Rejecting or, or rebellion or opposition to an idea, a concept. Mm. Um, and that's what most people think about when they think about resistance. But the other kind of resistance, and there's, there's, there's more than a couple, is compliance, cooperation, mm. uh, to, to agree, to, to, to swallow it whole without really chewing it and, and digesting it. But no matter the, the resistance, what I've been thinking about a lot lately is this idea that we need to honor it, that, that people have their resistance for a reason. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter, like you said, who we're dealing with. Mm. Um, but if you don't honor the defense, I always think about it this way. If you can imagine a wall that somebody builds around themselves 
to protect themselves from perceived threats or threats. And if you walk up to it with a pickaxe and a chisel and a crowbar, the only choice they have left is to reinforce the wall, to run, or to mount an offensive attack. And so what I think about often, even when I'm talking with staff, is is that everybody has the resistance for a good reason. And if I spend time trying to understand it, not just go through it or, or break it down, if I spend time really um, listening to the story that it has to tell, then I'm gonna find out something more important. Most people really look forward to the moment in therapy or parenting where they get to tell people what they know, you know, let people know the way it is. And, and that's really the easy part of any relationship, including therapy. What we really are in the business of is treating resistance. Why do people not do what they know? Why do people struggle to adapt and to internalize the principles, the ideas, the concepts that, that we know from mental health and, and, and addiction treatment? And so I spent a lot of tr time trying to honor and respect and understand the resistance, but also trying to teach other people, don't just break it down, don't just confront it. Those things tend to provoke it to be even stronger and reinforced. What you need to do is to listen to it and to, to respect it and to listen to the wisdom and the story that it has to tell you. So I think that's a great question and I think it's something that we take for granted because the untrained person, the person, the, the lay person thinks you just confront, they, they think there's some talent or wisdom in confronting resistance and really that's something that a, that a third term graduate student can do. It takes a lot more capacity to, to, to sit with it, understand it, listen to it and honor it. Absolutely. And, you know, as you were saying that, I think about uh, being a parent myself and mm -hmm. how the 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 uh, what you're saying about resistance, even with our own children and our own relationships, you know, how important that is. Right. Because in my better right. moments, my better moments and a lot of this coming from talks we've had in your book and, you know, not to flatter you, but I mean, we've you know, we've, I'm, I'm a fan, you know, I am. And we've talked about this <laughs> stuff that, you know, this idea that, you know, with, with, with our children, that we don't get to be right and we don't right. get to, like, you know, one thing I've been saying a lot and I've actually stolen it a little bit, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna give credit where it's due here, is learning how to lose, you know? Like, right. like this idea that, that we're not, and so even with my own kids, my whole thing was always a pickaxe, like, like, uh, right. you know, like what's going on, right? <laughs> like, like you, right, you're really right, quiet right. this morning. What's going? I mean, I did it this morning with my son on the way to school, mm -hmm. um, where you know he's just being a 14 year old, wants to sleep right. more. Um, he thinks about basketball and food. You know, I mean, he doesn't really right. think about. It. He doesn't have a lot more going on at the moment. And so, you know, I'm and I'm wanting to connect with him in the morning on the way to school, and he's like, Dad, I'm fine. I'm just, I don't really want to talk right now. Like, it's not right. you. It's just I don't really want to talk right now. And, you know, of course, the first feeling that comes up with that is like this overwhelming like or whatever. And then, and then there's this other little reminder of like he gets to be him. He gets to be where right. he's at right now. And it's not personal. It's not necessarily about me. And I think as a parent, for me anyway, that's been a really challenging way to look at things where it's just like I'm not responsible for my kids' feelings sitting there. Like, I, I can't, right. whatever's going on is just going on. And it just reminded me of the pickaxe. It's like kind of coming in. It's, it's right. not necessarily a huge wall of resistance, but it's a little bit of, hey, I want to be in my space right now, and I don't really want you to interfere with me, you know? Right, um, right. And honoring that. But I didn't grow up like that. I don't know about you. I didn't grow up like that. So it's a really no, different no. way to view things, you know? Right, Yeah. right. Yeah. No, I, I remember that with my son. I remember consciously making the shift this idea that I have that you have to grant everybody, kids especially, their dignity. 
Mm. And that although I thought I had, and maybe in some instances I had this kind of x-ray vision that my training and experience treating adolescent boys for the most part gave me, that I, I, I shouldn't use it all the time, that it was invasive. Mm. And so I can remember giving my child his space, kind of having an idea that something was going on, mm. but giving him his space. And I can actually remember the evening when I consciously made that, that choice. And I, I, I don't know if I'm imagining this or, or not, but I saw a look in his eye that said, this is strange and maybe I can trust this guy. Mm. Maybe it's not for him. Maybe he can be there for me. And I mm. think that's a really hard shift that, that I, I wish you and I and all had earlier in our life, but, but sometimes it takes some time, some, some wisdom and experience to kind of see the, the, the deeper, more important process when we're working with, with anybody and maybe most importantly, our children. Mm, for sure, for sure. Talk about that phrase, like learning to lose. Will you talk about that concept a little bit? Sure. Yeah, you know, <laughs> it's taken some time to get better at it. You know, when I was, I'll say it this way, and I think about this also clinically and, and, and in parenting. Um, I didn't know that I was okay. You know, because I caused my mother concern and everybody would have agreed with her that I was doing things as a teenager that would cause any normal parent who cares concern. But because I saw her concerned, upset, disappointed, frustrated, anxious with what I was doing, I thought something was wrong with me. That's the only interpretation that a child can make. And so I spent 20 or 30 years trying to prove to everybody that I was okay, that, that mm. I was of value, that I was, that I was worth loving and, and that mm. I was okay. And it wasn't until my 40s when I started to, to, through my own therapy, started to realize that I was okay. And when I, when I realized that I was okay and started to believe that, I was okay being wrong. I was okay apologizing. I was okay in a session with a client, with, with my children, with my wife. Mm. Those are harder arenas for, to, to, to do it in. Of my course, children remind me all the time. Yeah. But I was okay saying I'm sorry. And I was okay saying I got it wrong. And... Um, losing. I was okay losing an argument, losing an idea. And it was a, it was a, a feeling, an experience, a capacity that came from feeling better about myself. And, and, and so I started to think about it in those terms that when you grow, when, when one grows, you get really good at losing. You're, you're mm -hmm. willing to, to lose an argument, lose an idea. You know, when I'm, when I'm talking with a client or even a therapist, and when I present an idea, and I try to present it not as advice or, or, or a directive all the time, but I, I share it like, hey, I have this idea, mm. or I have this thought, mm. or, or what if we, you thought about we did it this way? Mm. And when somebody rejects it because they're just not ready for it, that's their resistance, right? Mm. Then I'm able to say, okay, maybe that was a dumb idea. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and that's it's not just a skill, although I imagine it could be presented as a skill. It's, it's really, for me, the ability to just be okay with being myself. And there's such a different project mm. in, in all areas of life. There's a different project between being a self mm. and being right. And most of us were cooked in the soup, I like to say, mm. of right and wrong. Mm -hmm. And that is contrary and, and in direct opposition of the idea of being a self. And so I'm, I'm learning how to be a self. Mm. I wish I'd learned it earlier, but better late than never i'm learning how to be a self and a self is just okay being a self they don't they don't have to be right and it's a real liberating experience a real real gift for me personally and my experience is that the people around me enjoy it a lot better too you know i was i was thinking a little bit about this because you know without getting into any detail like you're you're in my paths um 
have mirrored it, it themselves in a lot of ways. I think we, we, we started our own businesses originally around the same time or, or close mm-hmm. to, um, mm-hmm. and, and, and you go through the trajectory of quote unquote success, right? Like whatever that is, people right. are coming and you, and you become a little bit more well-known and within our little world, you become a little bit more celebrity, right? Like, and I want to really emphasize our little world, but, um, right. but basically, you know, for me anyway, there is this path of, growing up the same way, the identified patient and the kid who was a struggle all the time, you know, that once I started to experience that external success, like, you know, wow, I can't be that bad. People are sending their kids to me in Boulder, Colorado, right? right. So, you know, right. that that was in and of itself a really addictive feeling. And and, and again, I, I, I hope and, you know, the whole time we were doing the best that we can, obviously, but right. but my ego actually was pretty much driving the show for the first half of Aim House, right? So 20 years, I think right. the first 10 years, it was really about that. It's kind of trying to overcompensate for this deep need of just feeling like I wasn't enough and I wasn't okay, right? right? Sure. And, and so... So what's interesting about that is, you know, I, I'm curious, you and I have had these conversations. I haven't had it with a whole lot of other people, nor are there a whole lot of other people that have kind of been at this as long, you know, it's like, you know, right, but, right. but for, for, for a program or programs or the work that we do to survive and evolve, in my opinion, and I, I haven't really checked this, but if the original founders and people are going to be sticking around and doing that, their own work, doing their own work, going through their own process, seeing the unco- their own unconscious mind, moving through these things, mm-hmm. you know, is essential for that organization to remain whole and continue to evolve. Would you Would you agree with that? Yeah, that that was that that's something that that a handful of years ago that we really that I and we really wanted to emphasize in our core values was what we call organizational health, which was, uh, which is a commitment from the top um, that we're gonna we're gonna do our own work. This is not gonna be about personalities. It's gonna be about the principles, um, and we're gonna be open to it. That's why we started the Fitz Conference that we ran for several years. That's why I run the professional groups where we bring in professionals from the the therapeutic and, and addiction field to, to support them doing their own work. It's easy for me to plug that because I do it myself. Exactly. I do my own work exactly. in, in therapy. I do my own in, intensive work. And it's just, I, 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 I can't, I tell new therapists this all the time and, 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 and I don't know how many of them listen to it, but there's nothing more important than doing your own work in, in, in training and being able to support other people heal. Absolutely. And, um, and what, is like that, what does that mean, early, doing your own work? Like, I mean, I think I know what you're talking about, but for somebody who's like, right. doing my own work, what does that mean? You know, in a, in a simple answer, it is sitting in a room on the other couch. It could be AA, Al-Anon, CODA. Uh, it could be being the client in therapy and taking the risk to tell your story and, mm. and, and taking the risk that the people that are listening are going to have the same responses that people in your past had, people mm. in your earlier context had, which is you're going to cause them to be upset or anxious, uh, worried or frustrated or disappointed in you. And so if you find a, a place, if you find a context where you're able to to talk about, to, to tell your story, to explore, as, as Carl Jung says, your own darkness, then it becomes pretty easy to see and understand the darkness of others. Mm. Um, so it's, 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 it's more than a self-help book. It's more than reading Brene Brown or listening to a podcast. It's, it's really taking the risk of showing up, telling the truth, and, and, and taking the risk that somebody's going to respond, like I said, the way that others have. And when they don't, when they respond with curiosity and listening, 
you you start to you start to heal. You start to find the wounds. You start to find the, the kind of the the origins of all the the nonsense and the BS and the ego and the stuff that's there. Mm. And you're, you're able you're able to kind of uncover it and heal it and, and integrate. And it's a process that can't be rushed. There's no shortcut. There's no easy way. Mm. But it, it's it's just sitting in that spot, sitting on the in that other couch and. Like like Victor Frankel, Victor Frankel talks about the difference between different kinds of therapies. That some therapy you go to 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 hear hard things, but what I believe, my experience is, therapy, good therapy, is a really not a place where you go to hear difficult things, but where you go to say difficult things hmm. and to take the risk of being heard. And so that's what I think your work is: is exposing yourself to that experience. And if you experience the the, the kind of thing that I have with my therapist over the last twenty years. It's everything. It makes all the difference in the world. And it's pretty easy for me to see everybody else's stuff because I've laid mine out on the table and mm-hmm. it hasn't caused people to panic and run out of the room. <laughs> exactly. And I think the other the other side benefit to that is it creates so much more spaciousness within us, right? So like, right. I find that I'm able to tolerate more ideas and react less to every situation, the more I kind of understand my own triggers and hot points and all that stuff, you know? Right, yeah. right. Yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Um, one thing I want to mention, because it's, 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 it's timely, is um, I wanted to mention Bill Lane, you know? And um, right. um, for those of you who didn't know Bill Lane, I think anybody, yeah, there's most anybody who's listening to this probably knows who Bill Lane is, who passed this past week and um, was this kind of iconic guy. I, I, um, I knew Bill personally really well. A lot of people did. One of the things that struck me about, uh, I don't do, I try to stay away from f- social media as much as possible. I'll be really honest. I only look at how many likes like I have. I don't really check out other people's stuff. <laughs> so, but this, <laughs> but this week I did go through and kind of look at all the different tributes to Bill. And what was interesting about it to me was that this is being fully, fully transparent. Initially, my first reaction was, oh my God, like, he had the same type of relationship with me with hundreds of people, right? Like, right. like, right. you know, I could say it's more special because I was on that CD and blah, 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 like all this stuff. It, 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 but my whole point is like, that's like this ego thing going on. And when mm. I sat with it and I realized over time was it was like, holy cow, like this guy influenced an amazing amount of people. Right. Like, and, and just, just, just from, just from his presence, right? Just from right. who, who he was. And, I just wanted to take a moment and reflect on that. And I don't know, you got any good Bill stories or anything that you want to say about you it? You know, I had the exact same experience you did this week. And, it, and, and my eyes are getting wet right now because um, he, you know, I read other people make this comment and there was a little bit of me that thought, wait, that thought, wait you had that experience too? I thought I was unique <laughs> and special. That's what I was saying, yeah. But, <laughs> you know, you walked up to Bill and sometimes he would, he would, he would drive several hours to see me speak or to, uh, to attend an event. Yeah. Um, and I thought you would do that for me. And you know, you, for me, the, the phrase that, that, that I remember with Bill is I would walk, I would, I would see him somewhere and he would say this guy, and he would look around like he was announcing to everybody that I arrived, that I was in the room. And then he would come up and give me a hug and just, it's hard to explain. And it's, when I was looking at the, the tributes and other people saying the same types of thing, I thought, that's really the legacy that I would want to leave, right? Is that people right. felt when they were around me like they were the most important people in the world and special. And I, I don't think I've done a, a fraction of that, that that Bill did. And and as you probably saw on your social media timelines, I showed my family it as I was crying about it. I, I just I just flipped through the pages of my 
of my social media and virtually everybody I knew had pictures and stories of Bill. And I guess that's what happens when, when you fill the world up with love and when everybody around you feels like they're special and that they're loved and that they're worthy, uh, you have that impact on people. And so, yeah, Bill, I didn't know him tremendously well. You know, I always felt close to him when I was with him. I reached out to him in January um, to connect with him, and, and we did a little bit, which I'm really happy for. But um, Bill just had this wonderful gift to make everybody feel that same way, and um, that's really something to to, to admire and to, to to try to live. Uh, it's like such a do. such a beautiful legacy, such a beautiful thing to 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 leave behind. And I I kind of I've embraced it now. I like that I wasn't that special. I like that mm-hmm. he he made so many people feel that way because right. there's just a, you know there just really aren't a whole lot of people in the world, in my experience, who who do help people feel you know, like they belong. I think that's what it is, was with him, right? Like he, like no matter who, and it didn't matter, you know, like if you had worked, you know, in the field for 20 years or 20 days, he would treat people with that, that same kind of consistent regard. And, um, he's going to be tremendously missed. And, you know, nobody, there will not be, and I, I I don't think you can say this about everybody, but like they broke the mold with this guy. Like you're not going to, there is not the next Bill Lane or, or who will do that. I think, Hopefully, there, there, there's bits and pieces of, of his legacy right. that, that all of us can kind of take with us and, 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 and emulate in ways that fit well for us, you know? Um, you know, we should really have something in, in one or more of our organizations that's the Bill Lane Memorial Award, which is the reward for somebody doing something wonderful in, in their community mm. or in this, this field. Because, you know, I, th- I, I know... Lots of fields have that kind of award. Yeah. And there's something about even the name Bill Lane that evokes this this feeling of of love for, for everybody. And and again, like I like I talk about it, it comes from feeling loved. Right. You know, Maya Angelo is, is kind of known for the idea that if I knew better, I would do better. Right. But really what I think it is is if I felt better, I would do better. Mm. Right. If I feel mm. okay, if I feel love like Bill made you feel, mm. all you did when you left Bill's presence is you just wanted to spread the love that he gave to you. And yeah. I think we should have something in our field that's the Bill Lane Memorial Award that somehow reminds us of that that ideal and and encourages people to, to to live the way that he lived. We we really do need to do that. You know, not not in in and, and whether it's you know given that award or something, but I've I've said this for a while. I, I feel like our field doesn't take time to celebrate and honor people, really. If right. uh, I mean, unless unless I'm just not invited to that party. But like, <laughs> but like you know, a few years back, you know, we did that thing for Bill in Denver. Remember? And I'm so glad now that yeah. we did that because yeah. it was like a I envision it like a lifetime achievement party, right? Like just acknowledging right. and, and, and and putting some of that love back on somebody. But it'd be really cool almost every year to have something similar to that where you know, competition and all that other crap goes out the window right. and you just show up in order to honor leaders in our, in our, in our field because, because it's important. And I think it, it's not just important now, but it's actually important for generations ahead. Like, right. because, because the icon that is Bill Lane and the memory then the legacy that's left over, you know, people attach to things like that and aspire and the right. story, the stories will become even bigger now that he's gone. Right. Like they'll become, sure. <laughs> it'll be like, well, I remember when Bill walked on water to the conference. 
<laughs> right. You know, it'll, it'll carrying take, and, a, a troop on top of him. And, and the thing is, getting back to that for just a second, the thing I really loved about Bill Lane the most is that this guy was not a saint by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, none of us are. But he was. You know, he spent, did time at Rikers Island. He he talked to me about his early days of you know cutting his mom's plugs off of her appliances so that he could tie himself up to shoot heroin. I mean, I don't say that as like I say it in a way of like, look at this guy's journey. It's all right. of our, it's all of our journey, and it's the it's the participants' journeys. And so, there's just something about his passing that feels so important to pause and reflect on. You know, I'm glad we've had a chance to talk about it because it's it feels very meaningful to so many of us. I'm glad you brought that up, Danny, too, because I think that that's also the thing that, that that's important about Bill is that uh, what I suspect is and and that that where he kind of derived this this ability this capacity to to show up the way that he did was because he showed up in the rooms early on mm-hmm. you know he showed mm-hmm. up in places and, and told people this is what I did I cut my mom's plugs to to tie myself up to shoot heroin and there was somebody in that room that said to him, you belong. Right. And when right. it happens to you, when somebody says you belong, despite mm. your, your horrible, rotten self, y- you have an experience that means everything, a, a grace that's, 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 you know, that's hard to, to put into words. And all you want to do is you just want to give that to other people. Mm-hmm. And that's what I suspect. I never made that connection with Bill while Bill was here, but I've thought about him in the last couple of days and thought about his history and his past. And I suspect that's where he got it, that he was welcome. All of his warts and, and, and flaws and scars were welcomed. And so he wanted all of us, everybody, to feel that also. That's what I suspect. Mm, yeah, well, rest in peace, dear friend. It's hard, it's hard to imagine that, uh, it's hard to imagine that he's not here. You know, it's, you picture going to the next conference and there's just, you know, maybe what we should do to honor Bill is just like have a big hole in the lobby of the hotel, you know? Because uh, right. that's, I think, how it'll feel in a certain way to just not see him and, and be there. And and yet, yeah, I think there's also a challenge within there of like, how can I how can I bring some of that energy to other right. people? You know, I, I have a tendency sometimes to walk through lobbies and like, oh, I don't want to see anybody. And But he was just right. such the opposite of that, you know? And um, I. I was thinking this week that uh, I don't know if I believe in a heaven kind of in the formal way that people talk about heaven, but if there is one, Bill is there and he's talking to the person in charge saying uh, something nice about all of us. He's saying, just let this guy in. Trust me, he's a good guy. Yeah, yeah. Don't, you know, know, he's more than on paper. On paper, he looks like a tough one. (laughs) You know, (laughs) he's got a good heart. That's what Bill would be doing right now. The booby's got a good heart. The booby's got a good heart. You know, they say something like that. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. That's a good image. I want to live with that. Um, All right, well, tell me now, bring us up to, you know, I I could talk with you for hours, but tell me presently, like, what are you working on? What are some of your, you're always up to something new. What's going on? Well, you know, right now, I'm I'm literally, I, I should put, the ending on uh, the last chapter of my second book. Um, Do we have a title yet? Really, or? it's an. Ex- uh, there's a working title. Okay. My, my publisher likes to name it herself, but mm. the, the working title, which kind of tells you what it's about, it's called "Being Human: What It Means to Be a Self and Love Another." Um, nice. and, and really, what it does is it expands from the journey of the heroic parent, which is about parenting. Those are the stories, those are the ideas, but it's really not about parenting at the same mm. time. It's really about what it means to be in relationship to other people and what mm. it means to be a self. And so I've just expanded that idea. And really what I realized late last year at the end of the year was all the speaking engagements, all the teaching that I do, mm-hmm. the stories that I tell, none of those are in my first book. And so I thought I have a second book that that's ready. I'm talking about love. One of the chapters is called Marriage, Divorce, and Psychosis. 
I'm talking about other kinds of relationships and 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 what it means to to be in those. What this this sensibility shift that 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 I think about when I think about therapy and growth and, and progress. So that's what I'm writing about. I have a chapter on learning how to lose, like you talked about. That's the one that I'm actually finishing finishing up today. Nice. Um, so. I'm working on that, finishing that, excited about that. I'm doing a lot of speaking, but it, really a lot of my emphasis is up at the the Summit Lodge, mm -hmm. working with families, individuals, and professionals and, and trying to build a culture everywhere, but, but specifically in, in the community, in the therapeutic community, where people that are providing services, mental health services for people, are taking the challenge. And, and you know, Danny, you and I talked about this. Frankly, most people that, that do this work are terrified mm. to sit on the, the client couch mm. and to, to open up and, and the vulnerability that comes along with that. And so when, when people do that, when they show up, when they take that risk, and it's just an honor, as you know, we, we did one together. It's an honor to kind of provide a safe place for them. Um, I just think it makes the world of treatment a better place and, and, and hope that more and more people, if not with us, with, with other groups that are doing it, will take the, the, the opportunity to delve into their own stuff. So that's where I'm spending a lot of my time and energy right now is, is running those and recruiting for those. And people can, can reach out to me and, and, and ask to attend one if they're in the therapeutic community. And um, I'm just hoping that that, that that spreads and that continues to impact our, our, our field. Well, it's, it's incredibly valuable work. And just so that we're, we're super clear, anybody listening to me right now, there is nothing in this for me other than <laughs> I, I love the work that's happening there. And I've been part of it um, up at the lodge and, and had the great fortune of, 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 as Brad mentioned, doing a workshop with, with him, which, which I kind of co-host, but I really more watched Brad work and it was amazing and, um, and held space, you know, but I, I just have to say it's so well worth it. Like, I don't have time. Yes, you do. You have time. Mm -hmm. Sign up for time. one of these things because um, you will have more space. That's the best way that I can say it. You're going to feel yeah. better and you're going to have some more space. And for all of most of us, when I talk to people in the field, myself included, it's it's just so seductively easy to out busy ourselves out of ourselves. You know what I mean? And it's right. just, um, it's easy to do. There's plenty of distractions everywhere. There's plenty of work to do. There's plenty of crises to deal with. Um, you will deal with them better and you will feel better if you do workshops like like the ones that Brad's doing up at the lodge. So um, let's give them the information in case somebody wants to just look it up really quick. Is there a website they should go to for that? Yeah, you can go you can go to our website at evoketherapy.com okay. and, and under our programs you can look at professional workshops or the Finding You, like you said, which is for anybody. It doesn't have to be a professional in our field. You can also email uh, intensives at evoketherapy.com. Um, you can email me, brad at evoketherapy.com to, to find out uh, to, to, to express interest in, in joining. And, and like I said, you know, I, 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 it's easy for me to sell these because I do them myself every year personally. Right. I, I sit in the other position. And so it's not something that I'm saying, you know, that people should do. And I don't, I don't, I don't take that same advice. It's something that I think is, is fundamentally, fundamentally critical. To, to what I do in my capacity to be able to hold space, like you said, for others. Absolutely. Completely agree. Um, Brad, it's been a pleasure, my friend. Thanks for coming on the I Can't Help You podcast. I've been wanting to do this for a while. Will you, will you come on again? Yeah, absolutely. Anytime. Good, good. Um, thanks so much for the time. And I uh, want to thank Justin and Lauren for helping us put this together. And um, thank you to everybody for listening. We sure appreciate it. You can um, it, you can go like us on uh 
What, Lauren? It's uh, I forgot the likes. You got You want to go to the podcast? Go to the iTunes Store and write a review. If you like what we do, go to the iTunes Store, write a review. Feel free to share some of the information. We're gonna keep doing it, whether two people listen or a thousand people listen, because we love doing it. But um, love to spread the word and get 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 it out there to people. So thanks so much. Um, we are being brought to you in the Made Life Studios in downtown Boulder. Thank you to Made Life and all the people here. If you want to learn out a little bit more about Made Life, check out our Creative Accelerator programs. Um, pretty cool stuff going on here. Um, and that's all. I I have for today. Brad, thanks for being here and look forward to seeing you again soon, my friend. Thanks, Danny. Take care.